0: Today on Inside Politics, what caused the Civil War? Most would give a one word answer, slavery, but not Nikki Haley. And this morning she's trying to clean it up. Plus Donald Trump's lawyers have a very busy few weeks ahead. We'll tell you the key dates to watch in his multiple civil and criminal trials. And Republican Lauren Boeberg barely won her very red district last time around. Her solution moved to an even redder district. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start in New Hampshire and one of those campaign moments that you just knew would immediately go viral. It was a town hall last night in the state where Nikki Haley has been doing quite well. And a voter asked what seemed like a simple question with a simple answer. Listen to, for now, just part of what happened
1: of course the civil war was about slavery we know that that's unquestioned always the case we know the civil war was about slavery but it was also more than that it was about the freedoms of every individual it was about the role of government by the grace of god we did the right thing and slavery is no more but the lessons of what the bigger issue with the Civil War are. Is that let's not forget what came out of that, which is government's role, individual liberties, freedom for every single person, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do and be anything you wanna be without anyone or government getting in your way.
0: Again, that was uh, Nikki Haley. She was actually speaking today about what she thought, what she meant to say last night. I want to go to Eva McKend, who was there last night at that event. Uh, Eva, she uh, tried not once but twice so far already today uh, to clean up her comments last night.
2: Yes, Dana, she is in cleanup mode indeed, because this conversation really brings into focus the larger way that she has run her campaign, really in a play it safe mode. She is reluctant to go after her rivals uh, directly. Uh, but here is how she responded last night when she's asked this very direct question about what were the origins of the Civil War. Let's listen. What was the cause of the United States Civil War?
1: Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do.
2: So, Chris Christie has often lamented that Haley tries to be everything for everybody. Governor DeSantis laments that he believes that she runs a different race here in new hampshire than she does in iowa no doubt what this controversy will do will continue to feed that flame and feed that narrative uh, that she uh, sometimes is malleable and not consistent in her messaging but she is working overtime to refute that to move on and pretty soon after addressing these uh, this civil war fallout uh, she went right back to her standard stump speech dana Okay, Eva,
0: thank you so much for that. I want to bring in my great panel on this and much more, CNN's Casey Hunt, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Tia Mitchell, and the Associated Press's Sung Min Kim. Nice to see you all, especially on a holiday week. Uh, Okay, so we played a a bit of what she has said this morning, and also uh, Eva just played a bit of what sparked all this last night. I want to actually play all of it, or at least enough, Enough of it, all that we could hear, because some of it was a, a bit inaudible. Uh, this voter asking the question, and then Nikki Haley's exchange back and forth with the voter.
1: I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? I'm sorry?
2: I'm not running for president. I, 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 I wanted to see uh, yours a good thing. thing on the cause of the Civil War.
1: I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And we, I will always stand by the fact, That I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. Government doesn't need to tell you how to live your life. They don't need to tell you what you can and can't do. They don't need to be a part of your life. They need to make sure that you have freedom. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way.
2: Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery.
1: What do you want me to say about slavery?
2: Um, uh, you answered my question. Thank
1: you. Next question.
0: So let's talk about this, first of all, just on, on its substantive level, and then we'll talk a little bit about sort of the, the mechanics and the politics of what it says about her campaign. Um, substance-wise, there was only one answer, and it was slavery. Uh, She did not give that answer. And we heard the voter come at her and say, why didn't you say slavery, effectively? I'm
3: paraphrasing here. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that you played that whole clip because you can see that she had plenty of time and plenty of opportunity to say that. And, you know, there was even this one moment where, you know, he says... I'm astonished you don't mention slavery. And as you saw, she says, well, what do you want me to say about slavery? So it's not as though she wasn't handed the opportunity, uh, you know, on a silver platter there um, and she didn't take it. Um, and, you know, I heard in, in how she was addressing that, you know, I, I covered her campaign for governor of South Carolina. Um, this seems like the kind of answer you give when you're being careful to talk to a certain group of voters in a southern state about, you know, an issue like this that I think, let's be clear, this conversation evolved during times of racial strife, well after, actually, the end of the Civil War, um, when a lot of these uh, monuments to the Confederacy went up, etc. And there's a lot of pain um, in the way that this conversation is had um, for people who were directly impacted um, by uh, slavery, whose uh, ancestors faced um, that that horrible reality. Um, And again, I think, you know, the Biden campaign said it right away, um, you know, just... Uh, very shortly after it went up on social media, they said, it's slavery. The DeSantis campaign was able to say, you know, this was inexplicable, it's slavery. That's pretty straightforward. Well, let me just, uh,
0: before you jump in, because you mentioned that I want to show our viewers some of what you're talking about. This is, this morning, uh, a DeSantis spokesperson said, Andrew Romeo said... Embarrassing cleanup attempt, even if that's true, if she can't handle a question as basic as the cause of the Civil War, what does she think is going to happen to her in the general election? The Democrats would eat her lunch. Last night, not only the Biden campaign, but the president himself said simply it was about slavery.
4: Yeah, and when you asked about the mechanics of her answer, because she avoided mentioning slavery, even what she said left it up to interpretation whose side she was even on, you know, kind of talking about the Civil War. She talked about things like individual rights and capitalism. Well, quite frankly, that was some of the arguments made by slave owners in the Confederate states as to why they felt they were justified in this war. And and so without making it clear that this was about slave owning states wanting to continue keeping people as property you're missing the key argument and and almost as you're trying to gloss over what the war was really about.
0: And so, okay, so I mentioned that this, first we have to talk about the substance of this, but then there's the question of who she is, where she is, what her campaign has done in the last 12 to 14 hours. And so much of uh, sort of the way a campaign goes is determined by how they reacted. Things happen, things happen on the campaign trail. Uh, You know, candidates make Fs, they just do. It's happened to even the best candidates uh, in the world. And so the question is, how does she respond? We played at the beginning uh, what she said right out of the gate. She came out in a town hall uh, this morning, about an hour ago, and said, explicitly that this it was about slavery and tried to clean it up this morning she went on a radio show and had a very very lengthy answer saying of course it was about slavery but then she said i didn't want to engage with this with this person because the person who asked the question was a democratic plant and then started saying how the democrats
5: are trying to tear her down because she's a threat to joe biden Right, right. I was watching her um, comments in the last hour, and the first thing that kind of came to my mind is this classic rule of politics that if you're explaining, you're losing. And this was clearly politically just not a good moment for her because it does two things. First, um, I mean, obviously, too too early to gauge the long term impact of what this uh, blunder would do. But what it does right now is, first of all, it punctures this image that she's had and that she's cultivated during the primary campaign of being this very disciplined, on-message kind of this, you know, very uh, perfect candidate, if you will. And it really kind of knocks her off that. Clearly, this is not what she wants to be talking about for the day. But on the And then the second thing that it does, it really does highlight her history on, her kind of really tough history on race. If you look at, you know, going back to her race for, um, going back to her campaign uh, for South Carolina governor, she said a version of this before, back in 2010, when asked about the causes of the Civil War, she said it was kind of these two sides arguing about tradition, and change, and then obviously she had. There was the history with her obvious, uh, being governor when the Confederate flag was taken down of the South Carolina State House grounds. But a couple of years before that, or, or about five years before that, she had said the Confederate flag was not a racist symbol. So it does spotlight this pa- her this past, this part of a record that is difficult for her to talk about. Yeah, and
0: does that say as much about? the the republican electorate and the difference between the republican electorate in new hampshire and south carolina as anything else i mean that's the point you were making is that she yeah. obviously cut her teeth in southern republican politics right where she had to
3: as uh, a minority
0: as a minority woman where she had to deal with this attacks difference. against herself i, I was um, talking to it but new hampshire is the is the ball game for her in the short term and i was talking to a new hampshire republican this morning who's like look you have to understand how much pride New England vo- uh, voters, New England residents, take in being the people who went to the South and fought to end slavery, and how impactful so uh, this this statement or gaffe or whatever you call it could be, which is why she tried to clean it up already twice this morning.
3: Yeah, you know, and it's so interesting that you say that. I and mean, I've talked to New Hampshire uh, Republicans and Democrats actually who. Democrats in particular have, have bristled um, because, you know, some people criticize them for having an electorate that's too white. And they'll say, well, we sent Obama, you know, to the White House, et cetera. Like they'll point out that, 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 that diversity is something that, you know, the, the, the first woman um, on the Democratic ticket, et cetera. I mean, look, I think that this, you know, politics is so much about what are your instincts in the moment? How strong are they? And it's a combination of what you know about the voters and what they wanna hear from you and what you know and believe yourself. Yeah. And you have to find that balance. And it is very, very hard at the presidential level. It is a crucible. It is different from any campaign anywhere else. I mean, Ron DeSantis is learning this the hard way. Yeah. He thought doing it in Tallahassee was enough. It's never enough. You, you, and this is a moment for her in that crucible. Such a, such a good point. The person uh, who is running in New Hampshire who has done it before
0: is Chris Christie. And he is somebody who does uh, take pride in knowing how to read that. Uh, He is also trying to read the New Hampshire electorate with a pretty hefty uh, big dollar ad campaign that he has now running in New Hampshire, saying that explicitly he's not dropping out of the race.
6: Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. He pits Americans against each other. His Christmas message to anyone who disagrees with him? Rotten hell. He caused a riot on Capitol Hill. He'll burn America to the ground to help himself.
4: Yeah, I think it's interesting. And even when you bring it back to Nikki Haley, where Nikki Haley's central message to Republican voters is that I can win in a general election. I do better against Biden. But now this blunder kind of blunts that message. This is a general election blunder. Right. This was a general election blunder, which makes it tougher for her. But at the same time, her answer probably plays well to certain types of Republican voters. And at the end of the day, what the argument that Chris Christie is making, quite frankly, the argument that Nikki Haley is making, Mm -hmm. neither one of them, if you look at some of this early voting early states polling, Mm -hmm is really resonating at all, at the end of the day, they're still trailing way behind Donald Trump. DeSantis said something,
0: I think Vivek Ramaswamy did. Chris Christie hasn't said anything yet, and it is New, uh, new Hampshire or bust for him. He probably wants that paid ad to sort of speak for itself and not to be the message, but it is interesting. It, it, he,
5: it is very interesting, too, because I think Chris the, the, that ad was kind of in response to the questions that he's been getting about why aren't you dropping off? If you want to consolidate sort of this anti-Trump elected around one person, why aren't you dropping out and endorsing Nikki Haley? So I think you're right, he does want to let that ad, at least for now, speak for him for today. All
0: right, everybody, stand by, because up next, a very good meeting. That is how Mexican, Mexico's president, I should say, is characterizing his summit yesterday with two top Biden cabinet members. But is there an actual deal for Mexico to do more to stem the surge of migrants crossing illegally into the U.S.? We'll talk about that next.
7: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I
1: dot I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent.
0: Mexico and the United States are making progress on a border security deal. That's according to Mexico's president Obrador, who said the two countries reached an agreement to reopen US border crossings that had been temporarily closed temporarily closed rather by the Biden administration. This comes after yesterday's meeting between the Mexican president and senior US officials which Secretary of State Secretary of Homeland Security rather Alejandro Mayorkas described as very productive. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Eagle Pass, Texas. Rosa, what are you learning about these talks?
7: Well, what we're learning is a little bit more about the substance of what happened, because, like you mentioned, a lot of the U.S. and Mexican officials have been using these words. Uh, it was a very productive meeting. was a very good meeting. But, of course, we were looking for substance. What actually happened? What deal was made? What agreement was made? We're learning from a National Security Council spokesperson that Mexico's president has taken significant law enforcement steps on the Mexican side of the border. Now, why is that important? That's important because whatever Mexican do- Mexico does impacts the number of illegal entries into the United States. Now, I want you to take a look at this drone video taken by producer extraordinaire and also drone pilot Ashley Killo. You can see that there is very little to no activity here in Eagle Pass, which just last week was the epicenter of this crisis. Now, what could this be this mean? Why could this be happening? Well, this could be up law enforcement efforts on the Mexican side of the border. We've seen this in the past. Whenever Mexico ups its law enforcement, whenever they add checkpoints at trains that are used by migrants to move north, whenever Mexico uh, ups its deportations or repatriations or starts moving migrants from the northern from its northern border to central or southern Mexico, that is what we see. And so we're kind of seeing on the ground, perhaps the result of those talks now we're also learning from mexico's president and he used the word agreement that there was some agreement between the u.s and mexico we don't know the details of this agreement but mexico's president saying that there's some agreement so that the ports of entry can reopen. Now, the U.S. government was the one who closed several ports of entry in several states to respond to this crisis uh, because the personnel that worked at the ports were then reassigned to process migrants, to transport migrants. Again, that's the way that they surge resources to the areas that are most impacted by the illegal crossings, and Dana, It makes sense for these two countries to agree on reopening these ports of entry because they're major trading partners. So all that makes sense. Now we're gonna continue trying to figure out what else was part of this deal, who got what and what's happening. But for now, that's what we have. Donna, back to you.
0: Okay, thank you for that reporting and for that great uh, drone footage from Ashley. That was really telling. Thanks for sharing it with us. And our panel is back here. Uh, Look, let's just sort of put in context. The politics of this for President Biden and how important it is. Just one example from a Mammoth approval rating poll question. If you look at the the issues and how he fares: infrastructure, jobs, climate change, inflation, immigration. He is now 26
5: percent. That is not good. It's not good at all. And I think that part of the trip yesterday to Mexico by senior Biden administration officials was obviously to have these diplomatic conversations, but also to make the broader administration's point that this is a regional issue that requires regional cooperation. And sort of trying to blunt the criticism from Republicans that you're hearing over and over, saying that these were Biden's border policy that's causing these numbers at the border. But that certainly doesn't change the fact that he's under considerable political pressure over immigration and that his administration is probably preparing to make some significant compromises on immigration next month. Pressure because of the situation at the border. Pressure because
0: Republicans are trying as much as they can to uh, to blame Biden and his policies. But it's also... Big city mayors, Democratic mayors in big cities. Let's listen to some of them.
4: We cannot continue to do the federal government's job. We have spoken to FEMA and other federal officials who have expressed concern about the border's surge, but not offered additional help. Without significant intervention from the federal
8: government, this mission will not be sustained.
6: Denver finds itself right now at ground zero in trying to resolve and respond to the migrant crisis. We need more federal support uh, to be able to manage this amount of inflow.
3: Yeah, I I mean, that right there is the problem that Joe Biden has, right, in a nutshell, Um, because it is no longer, you know, for a long time, this conversation was these, you know, red state mayors and governors are being alarmist and you know we have to be that we have to focus on the humanitarian issue here obviously um the u.s has a humanitarian responsibility to you know it's written into the law into our asylum laws but this crisis has gotten worse not better um, and it, frankly the strategy that these red state governors have had of sending a lot of these migrants up to blue states has worked from yep. a political perspective um, and it is very very hard for these cities to absorb them um, and you know the, the Biden team, I think, knows that, or they wouldn't be willing to make these concessions in in these policy negotiations that they're having with Capitol Hill. I mean, the cynical political way of looking at it might be to say, well, maybe Republicans don't want to let them do it because they would prefer this continue to be a problem for them uh, in the twenty twenty four election. Oh, how
0: that, cynical! I know. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, not not maybe not that far off. And yet, possibly no, Well, well, and no. Well, that that brings me to uh, to what I was going to point out, which I think is important to point out like every single time we talk about immigration, which is how many times have we stood in hallways outside of negotiations on I mean, Capitol Hill weeks that were fruitless. Yeah, <laughs> probably, that <laughs> were fruitless for, for almost two decades right. to fix the federal immigration policy. So yes, President Biden is currently the president, but this
4: is a problem that has not been fixed for so long. Right, and we can't ignore the fact that we had four years of President Trump who made fixing immigration a central part of his campaign message, and then did very little about it beyond some segments of border wall. Um, And I think you're right that this is one of the most complicated complex issues. Number one, because it's not just the people coming across who need services, but you got to think about health and safety and food and shelter. But then there's the commerce issue that comes when you start shutting down crossings or limiting crossings that also has to be factored in. And then you also have to think about the political climate where I think that's what you brought up, Casey, that the political climate, as it ebbs and flows, there isn't always truly the will to get it done. That's something we saw with Senate Republicans back during the Bush years, where there was an agreement mm-hmm. that a lot of people kind of in hindsight say, we wish we had got it done then when we had the best chance. The question remains whether there's truly a chance. Now there's a lot more riding on Now there's foreign policy that's connected with the border security issue maybe that'll get something done because there's more at stake now, but it's just been such an elusive um, solution to the problem.
0: It has, and very, very potent politically still. Up next, it can be hard to keep track of all of the cases and all of the deadlines Donald Trump and his legal team are facing, so we're gonna walk you through exactly what you need to know as the new year approaches. Donald Trump's 2024 campaign includes some of his most disciplined advisors to date. But how is it navigating headaches from outside allies? And maybe the biggest question, the candidate himself. CNN's Kristen Holmes is uh, digging in in on this. And Kristen, you have some new exclusive reporting about this question. And it really is uh, a contradiction because when you think Donald Trump, you definitely don't think discipline. But at least it sounds like from your reporting, his campaign is trying to build something around him that is as uh, structured as can possibly be with a candidate with his personality.
6: Yeah, of course, Anna. So this is what we always want to start with. We're talking about the campaign, as in the behind the scenes operations, not the candidate himself. They know who he is and Donald Trump is going to continue to be who he is. But when it comes to the actual campaign, what's been striking to me over the last year, as you said, this is the most disciplined campaign team we have seen. He is right now led by Chris Lasavita and Susie Wiles. These are two veteran Republican strategists who have really worked to manage the message and the media around Donald Trump. And by doing that, uh, that sometimes means picking up the phone and calling people, telling them to knock it off if they are leaking to various publications. But what is getting harder as Donald Trump is moving or inching towards the Republican nomination is that, as one senior advisor put it to me, people are coming out of the woodwork, trying to show that they have an affiliation to Donald Trump, that they have some sort of uh, relationship with him, that they could potentially serve in a second administration. And those people are going around the campaign, going directly out to the media to try and essentially sell themselves as anonymous sources, but sell themselves as potential picks for a second administration. So this is becoming harder and harder for the campaign to lead a discipline cycle.
0: And so how does Donald Trump himself play into this dynamic that you're reporting about inside his campaign?
6: Well. As one strategist told me, Donald Trump's campaign knows that they cannot control him, so they're trying to control everything else around him. I mean, for example, one of the anecdotes that we use in this piece is that at a recent fundraising dinner, Donald Trump looked across the table to a group of donors and said, now, who do we think should be vice president? And started rattling off a bunch of names. Well, a few minutes later, a few days later, I got a call that Donald Trump was considering these names for vice president. That's hard to do when your own candidate is putting that out there. And something we know about Donald Trump is he seeks counsel from a huge swath of people. So if you are trying to control who he talks to, that's going to be very hard. I don't think they think that's possible, but that might be the biggest hurdle in all of this. You can't control the messaging from Donald Trump himself. Uh, Yeah,
0: that is maybe the biggest understatement of the year. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Kristen. Great reporting. And one thing his campaign is trying to control, but this is going to be up to Donald Trump's lawyers and, of course, the people who are involved in these cases, is whether he appears on the ballot in multiple states where major 14th Amendment cases are playing out. The former president is fighting back against those states, considering removing or at least have already removed him from the ballot because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. Donald Trump's legal issues, though, extend far beyond that fight. He's currently defending himself in cases involving classified documents, January 6th, fraud, election interference, hush money payments, defamation. So how will all of these cases play out and when will they play out in this year ahead? CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here to walk us through it. This is very confusing. It is very cumbersome because there is so much. <laughs> So we're going to try to do it in a in a linear way, doing it chronologically. Love that. January
8: fourth. All right. So this was the deadline for former President Trump to appeal the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that removed him from the ballot. Uh, they said that if he can appeal to the Supreme Court by then, they'll put their ruling on pause, which means he will be on the primary ballot. Now Trump has not appealed, even though he is expected to. But late last night, the Republican Party of Colorado appealed this ruling. Now, they are actually a party to this case. They have been fighting in court for their right to list Trump on the primary ballot. And it's the understanding of the parties and the legal experts we've talked to that that appeal is enough to put that Colorado decision on hold for now. But we're still waiting for that actual Trump appeal.
0: Okay. January 9th, five days later, a hearing about immunity
8: big day this is an oral argument for this appeal uh this has prompted a judge to put the entire federal january 6th trial on pause while the special counsel and trump's lawyers uh, argue in court about whether he has immunity or whether he's at risk of double double jeopardy now look dana sources close to the trump legal team they're pretty sure he's not going to prevail on the merits this is all about timing because whatever happens at the appellate court likely to be appealed to the supreme court they have already declined to step in here and just decide this so the trial can move. But that trial cannot start until this appeal is resolved. So yes, this is a fascinating constitutional question, but really that day is all about timing. Okay, Lynn, let's go up to New York two days (laughs) later, January 11th. This will closing arguments in that uh, civil fraud trial. This has to do with the Trump Organization. It's not a criminal case, but it's deeply personal to the former president. We saw him in court multiple times. there will be closing arguments, then we expect the judge, this is not a, a jury, Thing, but the judge will make his decision and we expect whatever that is will be appealed. OK, and then five days later, still in New York. Yes. E. Th- Carroll. Eugene Carroll back in court, this time focusing on damages for her second lawsuit against former President Trump. I mean, just look at that calendar. The first two, three weeks alone just jam packed with really serious legal jeopardy. We've never seen anything like this.
0: OK, so as you said, that is just the first 16 days of 2024. Uh, audience viewers just get ready to maybe be a little bit, um, overwhelmed with what we're about to show you, but that's kind of the point that is the calendar in the first eight months, uh, of the, of the year of 2024 of the election year and what he and his legal advisors, what his lawyers are going to have to be dealing with along, of course, with his campaign advisors.
8: Absolutely. So we also have the hush money trial. Remember, this is the first uh, criminal indictment that he faced. This will be in late March. This is the Stormy Daniels hush money case that was brought by the Manhattan D.A. People kind of forgot about it because they thought the January 6th case would go then and that case would be kicked. Well, that's unclear now. And the biggest question now is also the Mar-a-Lago documents case, uh, perhaps the the most serious case in terms of national security and and legal risk for the former president. That is currently penciled in uh, in late May. But a lot of the timing was dependent on the January 6th case. It was widely expected that that might get pushed. But if the January 6th case is delayed, the judge may have less, really, authority to push that back. Though so it's a very technical case, and there are reasons that she might try to push that back. So I have no vacation scheduled <laughs> uh, this year at all. But, Dana, it's not clear uh, what, if any, federal trials... He will face this year. Yeah,
0: usually, our legal correspondents get to take a breath when all of the political reporters <laughs> in an election year are working hard. Not since 2016. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Paula. Thank. It was really helpful. Thank you for doing that with us. us. And coming up, some members of Congress are retiring rather than facing a tough re-election race. Colorado Republican Lauren Boebert has a different strategy: switch to a safer district. That's next.
5: Today, I am announcing my candidacy for the 2024 Republican nomination to represent Colorado's fourth congressional district in the United States House of Representatives. It's the right move for me personally, and it's the right decision for those who support our conservative movement.
0: That was Lauren Boebert announcing that she will run in a different congressional district in 2024 from the one she represents now. She doesn't actually live there, but it is friendlier to her brand of politics, one that she has been uh, very vocal about at a national level for the past three years. My panel is back with us. Let's just kind of set the table with some facts. First of all, she only won in 2022 by 546 votes. And yet, it's not like the third district that she represents now is a purple district. It is a red district. Uh, Donald Trump won there by more than eight percentage points. It's not as red as the one that Ken Buck is going to leave empty because he is retiring. Uh, Donald, you see he won there by you know more than almost twenty five percent. Donald Trump did by eighteen percent. So look, Democrats, Republicans, they district shop. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been happening for a very long time, but it is fascinating that she is doing this uh, right now, especially given how close it was in 2022.
3: It was so close. And it was so close because they ran against Lauren Boebert. I mean, those numbers tell you everything you need to know. A Republican generic is likely to win the third congressional district. Uh, but people, you know, she, she just wasn't, <laughs> there was a lot to run against her, right? And she clearly saw the writing on the wall. I mean, she said in that announcement video, this means that we'll get a, you know, I can win in the fourth district and we'll get a Republican in the third district and it'll be all better for all of us. You know, I don't know that there are a ton, you know, of her Republican colleagues. I mean, I don't, some of them will probably say it publicly, but I don't think there's going to be any love loss for her if she doesn't return to Washington, even among her fellow Republicans
4: here. Right. So what she's doing is almost guaranteeing that Republicans won't lose a seat in Congress, right? Because now that there's a generic Republican on the ballot in the 3rd District, it's more likely, I guess, um, that Republicans can hold on to that seat. But she's not necessarily guaranteeing that she will return to Congress because there's already a crowded field in the Mm 4th District with the incumbent announcing he's not going to seek another term. Now, does she come in with a lot of name recognition? Sure, but not always for the right reasons. So what, I mean, it's early, it's day one, but it's going to be interesting to see if she clears the field in the 4th District or whether people say, no, we don't want someone like you representing us in Congress. We've got other you know, tried-and-true Republicans who we think are just as conservative with you without the baggage. Now, I will say that in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, that didn't work. People (laughs) wanted the bombastic and controversial lawmaker. We'll see if that's the same in a state like Colorado. She's got the
0: bombast. She's got the controversy. And from her perspective, she's got the conservative credentials, uh, not to mention being extremely pro-Trump she also has some baggage from since the time that she won re-election in 2022. We'll just put up some of the headlines. Kind of can't forget, if you pay attention to politics, she had to apologize because she was kicked out of a show, uh, a live show that she was watching. She falsely denied that she was vaping. Uh, She had to address an incident where she was allegedly being, well, we saw the video. Being groped. We all saw the video. It wasn't allegedly, <laughs> being,
5: being groped uh, by the man she was with. Right, I mean, and that's just since 2022. And so if you thought, if you saw how close that race was in 2022 and saw kind of all the headlines that she was making, for all the reasons, you see why Democrats were actually feeling pretty good about that district until obviously this morning when you, when we saw the announcement from Congresswoman Bobert. And this is also a district and a congresswoman that the White House has having, been having a lot of fun with. Um, President Biden actually traveled there. You don't see him going to a Trump plus eight district all too often, but he went there and the White House felt it was effective for him to go there. First of all, to tout the bipartisan infrastructure law, one of the biggest achievements of his presidency. There's a wind energy manufacturer in Pueblo, Colorado, where he spoke and he was happily calling out Lauren Boebert for voting against that law.
0: There are lots of serious issues uh, before this country and before the world. That isn't entirely what the former president is focused on this week. We're gonna show you uh, what (laughs) Donald Trump's latest grievances. And it is not getting enough credit for the success of Home Alone 2. This is, this is serious. Stay with us. Home Alone 2, it is a holiday classic. Who can forget Kevin McAllister, AKA Macaulay Culkin, getting separated from his family and lost in New York. He ended up at the iconic Plaza Hotel where the hotel's then owner stopped to give him directions.
1: Excuse me, where's the lobby? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks.
0: Three years ago, director Chris Columbus explained how Trump ended up in that movie. He said Trump bullied his way in, demanding a cameo in exchange for letting them shoot inside the plaza. That interview with the director resurfaced this week. Trump saw it, apparently, and he posted this on social media last night. He said i was very busy and didn't want to do it they were very nice but above all persistent that cameo helped make the movie a success but if they felt bullied or didn't want me why did they put me in and keep me there for over 30 hours because i was and still am great for the movie that's why okay (laughs) um you know these are the things that give us a window into what matters to the former president right now. I mean, I don't
3: know if he was, if I mean, he saw
0: that or if he was watching, uh, watching, trying to boost the, uh, the royalty.
3: The idea, that he's of course, I mean, it makes too much sense that, of course, if he was going to allow cameras into the Plaza Hotel, which he owned, he yeah. must be in front of one of them <laughs> at some point. I mean, I don't know if you, I, if Donald Trump, I, I mean, this is the thing about him, right? He, I, I remember shooting a stand up at his first Iowa State Fair, and it was packed. And my cameraman was standing on a ladder. The whole thing was teetering. And Trump walks through the crowd, looks at me, finds my camera, mm-hmm. says to me the words. You know, I asked him a question, and he points at it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I believe Chris Cornell. Right.
4: And, and, and I think it also shows how he's been able to manufacture his celebrity, put himself in positions mm-hmm. to be perceived as a big star. And yeah. that's how we have the Trump we have today. OK,
0: well said. <laughs> You can do the home alone face if you want. Uh, Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break.
1: (laughs) I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.